0: Hello, and welcome to the PetFinder Adoption Options Podcast, brought to you by PetFinder and Purina. I'm Katie Schmookie, and each week I'll be interviewing some of the best teachers in animal welfare to share their tips and tricks to help you get more pets adopted. Let's get this episode started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the PetFinder Adoption Options Podcast, brought to you by PetFinder and Purina. This week, we sit down with Pam Hill, who is a cat behaviorist, and I think that this is something we get so many requests for. So I talked to her about, it starts off with talking about cat enrichment, but we go a little bit deeper than that and how we need to just shift our mindset of enrichment and make it ingrained into our everyday behavior. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get it started. All right. (laughs) Pick <laughs> it off. <laughs> All right. So thanks so much for for being here on the podcast, Pam. And right. I think we should start off with you, um, just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself and how how you got started.
1: Okay. Uh, well, my name is Pamela Hill, and um, I am a certified cat behavior consultant. I've been working with cats in one capacity or another for about twenty years now. And um, I started my career at the Endangered Wolf Center, working with animals in St. Louis. Uh, But then after that, I worked at Purina Pet Care Company. And um, at that point in time, we were caring for cats, but there really wasn't a lot of information on cat behavior and cat welfare. Um, That was a field that kind of didn't exist in terms of training and certifications so i just took advantage of every training opportunity that i could get and i worked with cats all day in and out and um so eventually that became my field of expertise and now i work with cat owners and i work with animal shelters and rescues uh, vet clinics uh, some businesses that focus on pets and um, when it comes to shelters and rescues i help them uh, evaluate where they stand with cat behavior and cat welfare with their programming and uh, help them implement strategies that will get more cats adopted and help them keep more cats in home and prevent them from coming into their shelter.
0: That's so awesome. So even just kind of building off of that, what do you think are some of the top reasons you're seeing, whether it be from shelters or from, you know, cat owners that they're struggling with? What are some of the main um issues, I guess, that you're seeing that you help people with?
1: Well, um, a lot of the reasons that cats are relinquished um, or lose their home are really about changes in the family status. So uh, people become ill or someone passes away, uh, or there's a change in the, um, uh, the family dynamic. Somebody got divorced, somebody got married. New people moved into the home, uh, things like that happen. Sometimes people cite allergies or moving, uh, but we're not totally sure about the veracity of those reasons. Um, but where I'm concerned is uh, behavioral problems that result in people giving up their cats. And those could be that a cat's not using the litter box or a cat is in conflict with other animals or people in the home. Uh, those are two big ones. Also, destructive behaviors uh, like or nuisance behaviors like scratching, stalking, and pouncing, um, counter surfing, things like that, that just grate at people day by day and kind of destroy the bond that you would hope exists between a cat and its owner or prevent that bond from ever developing um, in the first place. So behaviorally, uh, that's a lot of what I see. And when I work with cat owners, um, 90% of the cases are people who call and say, you're my last stop uh, before relinquishing my cat for um, sheltering or for euthanasia. So people do find themselves at a loss for professional help. Um, result-oriented professional help that uh, would allow them to keep um, the cat in their care. And uh, most people are very distressed about that. So in terms of thinking that maybe people relinquish their cats um, and take that decision lightly, that's not usually what I, that's not usually what I see.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so important to point out. And you know, we'll get into some tips that we have that you have for shelters and even maybe for pet owners, but I wanna talk about, first of all, do you think it's possible to prevent these kinds of issues while the cat is still in the shelter and set them up for success in the future? Um, and then I wanna talk about kind of why it's important in a shelter environment to think about these, these cats' needs. Um, So I guess that's kind of a twofold question, but we can start off with, you know, I mean, do you think it's preventable while these animals are still in the shelter?
1: Yes, I think that it's important um, that shelters uh, take steps uh, with their cat care programs that can help their cats um, experience relief from the stress that's inherent in being sheltered and set them up to be more physically and behaviorally healthy as they transition from the shelter environment to the home environment. So typically what I see is that sheltering and rescue environments have not historically been um, structured, either in their physical space or in their programming um, to meet cat specific needs. So the cats come in, and they're forced into an environment that hasn't been designed for them. And then the shelters are forced to kind of establish some practices that retrofit what they're doing to accommodate the cats. And it's, it's not the best solution. So the shelters really need to be aware of what cats need from the time they enter the door of the shelter to the time they leave the shelter and be accommodating that. So an example would be stress relief. Um, So shelters should do everything from the time the cat walks through the door, like I said, to the time they leave to be thinking about what all of the stressors are that a cat could be experiencing in the shelter and what all they could be doing to help relieve that stress. So um, cats frequently uh, go into a shelter and they're under stress the whole time and uh, because the environment doesn't allow them to uh, enact their natural behaviors. So they're forced to suppress those behaviors and that causes stress. We uh, as people are not that great at recognizing stress in cats and cats are really good at hiding discomfort. So sometimes we might not be able to see that a cat is stressed unless it's manifesting as a physical deterioration or In behavioral problems, but it's a safe bet that all the cats are under some level of stress, and it's good to do things that alleviate the stress. And some of those things are simple, like making sure every cat has access to scratching opportunity um, throughout the day. And some of them are more difficult, like making sure that um, the intake area is not. increasing the stress of cats. For example, if the intake area um, exposes cats to dogs that are also coming in at the same time. And another difficult thing is that most of the physical spaces that we have in shelters for cats are too small and don't allow them to move around the way that they need to move around. Um, So those are some of the bigger challenges, but shelters have to really look at that and see what kind of changes they need to put in place. Um, another thing that shelters can do is, as best possible, get to know their cats. So it is hard to know what a cat in shelter or rescue is gonna be like when it goes home. But there are some things that you can know. Uh, for example, you could ask, is this a high energy, high activity cat that is going to be seeking predatory play activity all the time, or is this more of a lap cat who needs quiet, and some really just soft, gentle petting sessions. That information is going to allow the shelter to make a much better match with adopters. Um, If shelters are not imparting that information, then adopters come in and they're likely to make a decision about a cat they want to adopt based on maybe the cat's size or the cat age or the way the cat looks those aren't the best indicators for a lifetime of success uh, with a person and their new cat. And then a third thing that a shelter can do is impart information to adopters on how to set up their home and their routine with their cat so that um, the cat doesn't become frustrated and start enacting behaviors that end up frustrating the adopters. adopters and shelters need to know that if the behavioral needs of cats aren't being accommodated then uh, those cats are likely to act out in some way and even if they're not acting out their quality of life is compromised and their welfare is compromised so those are three things that a shelter could do to increase the chance of success of a cat in its new home. Yeah and I think that's
0: so important and you know I think a lot of shelters would say, well, that sounds great, but I don't have enough staff. But volunteers, and I, I, just my personal kind of opinion is, I feel like we get a lot of really great cat volunteers who are very passionate about the cats and the care. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity to get them involved and, you know, help them help the cats.
1: Yeah, there's no way around the fact that whenever you're an organization or a person with limited resources and you have to do more, it's going to be a challenge to figure out how to incorporate the more that you have to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would say that if you look at um, the programming for dogs that exists in shelters, um, what it used to be 30 years ago Um, and what it actually still is in in isolated spots and shelters across the country. Um, But to what it is now in terms of best practices is night and day. And so you used to have dogs in really super small cages that never got out of the cage and were euthanized much more quickly for uh, behavior problems that would be anticipated. Um, And I think that when Uh, canine welfare was first being considered, a lot of sheltering organizations said there's just no way we're gonna be able to, you know, walk a dog um, once a day, twice a day, three times a day. It's not rare now and sheltering for for a dog to be walked two, three, four times a day by the volunteers and by staff and that was something I think (laughs) that was a really hard change for shelters to make. So now here we are with cats and that have been overlooked for longer than canines were overlooked because we relate to them a little bit differently. And sometimes they're a little mystifying to us. And if cats go into a small cage or condo, like I said, we don't always recognize the signs of their distress until they're behaviorally or physically sick. So now if we say, well, the cat needs to come out of the cage at least once a day, at least twice a day. Like that is just something that is mind boggling in terms of like, how can you achieve that? You usually have more cats, you have less space. So the obstacles and the challenge is there, but we have overcome those challenges when it comes to canine welfare. So it's really a matter of an organization looking at their programming in total and just kind of figuring out where to start and where that support is gonna come from. And it's an inevitable change. We know more about cats. We know more about cat welfare. We know more about what they need. The leading shelters in the United States are making these changes in in how they provide care to cats. So that train is moving. Um, It's really not, um, not a solution to say, we don't have X, Y, Z that we need to do this. It's more, how are we gonna figure out how to do this and get everybody on board to to help work it out and figure it out. So it's not an option if you really care about the welfare of the cats and you want more of them adopted, you want less of them euthanized. Um, As we move into solving the dog homelessness problem, cats is still an issue. So we need to make changes will help more of them get out of the shelter and less of them coming into the shelter. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah I'm in total agreement with you and I want to talk about so you bring up a good point of when we're planning we want to make sure that the cats are in the forefront and we want to figure out how we can make their lives or their time in our shelter or rescue as you know as good as we can and as low stress as we possibly can so you're seeing right now, especially during kitten season, that a lot of these organizations are completely overwhelmed, where, you know, some of them, I was just watching a Facebook live the other day of, they said, you know, we need to start moving these cats, or we're going to have to start putting them in little carriers. And that's not, that's not a good life for them. So we're seeing low budget shelters that are very overwhelmed with the amount of cats coming through their doors. So what are some I guess what are some kind of quick tips that you have for organizations that are in that kind of situation?
1: Well, um, even high budget, if you, if you would say high budget shelters have a budget that gets maxed out and they have to figure out how to use the dollars they have. Um, I would say the difference is probably not necessarily the budget, although the budget does make a huge difference, but um, the other thing that makes a big difference is planning. So organizations have to plan to be able to accommodate in the best way possible the animals that are coming into the shelter and um, uh, control that intake so that every animal can get the care um, that they need uh, while they're there and that's so that they don't get stressed out. I think that the um, I think that shelters can move cats and kittens through the pathway from intake to adoption faster if they have a planning process that takes into account all the different needs of the cats that come in. So I'll give you an example. Um, I was in a shelter a couple of weeks ago, and they had had this cat that came in that was um, probably an unsocialized cat, maybe even a feral cat. I think the cat was unsocialized and it was uh, very, very, very frightened. And the cat was um, kind of put in a quiet place just to chill out for a while, which was the right thing to do. And in the meantime, in the next two weeks, they got flooded with kittens. So the next time I went to see the shelter, I said, well, what's going on with this adult cat over here that's not very happy? And they said, well, you know, we didn't make any of the changes because we got flooded with the kittens and we have to take care of these kittens. Well, yes, but now you've got one cat and it's probably not one cat. It's probably other cats whose needs aren't being met. In the meantime, they're completely stressed out. They're getting farther and farther away from the opportunity for adoption. So you know, that organization does have to look at, you know, how many cats like this that have a higher level of need can we take versus how many kittens can we take? So we're making sure that none of them are suffering from a lower standard of behavioral health um, so that we can move them along faster. And so really what happens is that shelters are like emergency rooms. And every day, no matter no matter the best laid plans, the director and the operations manager and people come in and they're like, Today is the day I'm going to sit down at my desk and I'm going to spend a couple hours figuring this out, and it never happens because something comes up every day. So this is a dedicated effort that shelter and rescue organizations have to make to do the really hard work of planning and strategic planning. Um, which is the grunge work that takes time it's working out a lot of little details it's maybe changing some programming in ways that you don't like for a short term until you can get to a better long-term outcome Um, so shelters just need to keep in mind like if they get flooded and they're in that state it's part of it is their planning process Mm -hmm. part of it is their planning process unless there's been an external calamity that has impacted them. Um, you know, hopefully they could plan so that they never get overstressed. Some cats are receiving the care that they need so they can get out the door, but other cats that are slower to be adopted are sitting in a different place in the shelter and be moving further and further away from adoption while they just try to process through through the other ones. And I think sometimes it's just easier to, to Be the gerbil on the wheel as stressful as it is versus stepping back and being like, now we have to sit around a table and tick, tick, tick through a strategic planning process.
0: Yeah, it can definitely be daunting trying to. I mean, even thinking through my side in corporate worlds where strategic planning is the hardest part, but that's what keeps you on track and that's what, you know. in in a shelter or rescue environment, that's what helps you save more animals ultimately because they're moving faster. So yeah, I think that's a great point. And I wanna, I had the idea to save this question till later, but it feels like it fits right now. So Mm -hmm. I've been hearing you say um, meeting their behavioral needs and um, I think that I love that. I love hearing that. And is that, I wanna talk more about that. Is that the same as enrichment? Is it different from enrichment? Does it go hand in hand? Um, Can you just talk a little bit more about what that means from your perspective?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about enrichment um, for a minute because that's really the topic of our talk. And um, because I think that's the term that most people know. Um, For the last about five years, I've been speaking at a lot of sheltering conferences. And this is a question that I get all the time, which is, uh, I don't think we're doing enough enrichment, but how can we do more enrichment? All right. So I want to talk about enrichment for a minute. Enrichment is a term that has been around for a long time, I think since 1925, which is almost 100 years. And it is a concept that grew in popularity over the decades but really in the 1980s with the rise of the animal welfare movement. And then in, in the 1990s, there actually was a scientific field of inquiry that sprouted up around enrichment. So there, were, there, there was scientific inquiry before, but it, it became much more popular after the 1990s. So we're really only talking about the 1990s moving forward where we actually started collecting data about what animals need from their, captive animals need from their environments. So um, I think that I want to, I think that I want to read you a definition of enrichment, um, which was given from a scientific advisory board to the association of, um, the, so I'm going to say this wrong. Oh, hold on Katie. All right. This is a definition of enrichment that was given by a scientific advisory group to the American Zoo and Aquarium Association. Okay, so here it is. A dynamic process in which changes to structures and husbandry practices are made with the goal of increasing behavioral choices available to animals and drawing out their species appropriate behaviors and abilities, thus enhancing animal welfare. All right, so what the idea of enrichment acknowledged and brought into the light of day is that captive animals that are in good physical health may still be suffering simply because they can't be themselves behaviorally. So an easy visual for this would be, you know, the elephant that's confined to a small cement enclosure um, who is technically healthy, but is languishing right? Um, So as a society, our idea of stewardship of, our idea of our stewardship of captive animals um, has not been where it should be, which is to include all of the facets uh, that contribute to welfare. Um, So this was given a lift through the idea of enrichment and then by scientifically studying different animals to understand what the full picture of their welfare needs looks like. Um, So as part of this, animal sheltering organizations came to understand that they needed to do more to ensure the welfare of the cats in their care and ensure that the care is not compromised. Um, So enrichment from that point has been thought of as something that needs to be added to current programming. And this is kind of the way that we think of enrichment too, uh, like it's an add-on or like it's a plus-up. So we and part of that is marketing language because we might think of something like soy milk for example enriched with calcium and vitamin d right so the soy milk is foundationally fine it's not going to kill you but if you have these extra things added then it's even better Um, so for the last 20 plus years we've seen shelters figuring out and struggling to figure out how to add enrichment to their programming. Um, For example, how do we make sure that every cat has access to toys all the time? Okay, perfect example of the quandary you mentioned, which now I think most people, if they see a cat in shelter that has no access to toys, that is obviously not a good position for the cat to be in. But I think when shelters initially thought we have to provide toys, for every single cat, and not necessarily the same toy every day. Like we have to change, where's the budget, who's gonna put the toys in, who's gonna clean them, etc. Uh, but now it's a standard practice, so they, so they did figure that out. Um, so something that happened though in the meantime, as shelters are still asking me how do we add enrichment, is that we got to understand felines a lot better scientifically. Um, so like I said, Um, We've never understood cats as well as we've understood dogs because there's been less than and a slower um, movement to focus on them as opposed to dogs, Um, but we're getting there. So what we understand at this point in time is that cats do have specific biologically driven behavioral needs and um, that our environments, be they shelter, rescue, vet clinic, in-home research, uh, they need to be modified to accommodate those needs or else cat welfare and quality of life is compromised. And when that quality of life is compromised, you see behavioral issues, physical issues, you see um, more relinquishment, less adoption, you see inhibited vet care, Um, We know that cats don't get vet care that they should and a lot of that is because People don't want the hassle of taking their cat to the veterinary clinic and more importantly I think that what we're knowing now is it's unkind To a cat to put them in an environment where they can't express their their natural behaviors Um, so this is what happens when cats don't receive enrichment, right? They suffer, and, um, but the way that we, a more advanced way of thinking about enrichment now is not to think of it as like, how do I add enrichment to everything I'm already doing? But to think about how do shelters and rescues and, and cat owners bake into their programming and their daily routine with their cats ways to meet the cat's behavioral needs so it's not an extra thing that needs to be added anymore it's a different question which is um, to step back and say are we meeting the behavioral needs of the cats in our care and so shelters and rescues first need to understand what the behavioral needs are right and then um understand what modifications can be made to meet those behavioral needs. And then the third thing is, uh, really do a very thorough evaluation of the the experience from a cat's point of view. What is the experience from the time they walk in the door um, to the time they leave the shelter? And um, a lot of the time when I do my consultations with shelters, uh, we actually do that you know i 'm like let 's pretend that we 're a cat walking through the door of the shelter. You know we learn all this about behavioral needs, and then we say let 's go see what this experience is now, noting what you 're noting, and what is it like to um, open that door and and what are all the sounds and what are all the noises and what is the pace, and what is what is that interaction exactly like, and what are the opportunities to improve it at every stage? And then, you know, shelters make a decision generally to start with low hanging fruit or to start with something they've called out that they think is, um, you know, uh, egregiously damaging for behavioral health. And uh, and so that's a great way for shelters to walk through it because if a shelter is meeting the needs, the behavioral needs of the cat, we don't have to talk about enrichment anymore. environment is already great for the cat. And I would note that when we think about these things now too, the Association of Shelter Veterinarians provides um, guidelines for standards of care in animal shelters. And they have said that attending to the um, behavioral health of, of animals in the care of shelters is equally as important as attending to the physical health, uh, because both are critical components of well-being. So uh, we've kind of we haven't moved on from enrichment yet, uh, but there's a better way to address it, which is how do how do we bake it into our programming? And it's, and and then if you look back at the past, it's like well every cat's getting you know physical care so at some point in time that had to happen now the behavioral care has to happen what are the opportunities and 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 how do we do it and um i think it's a great time to undertake efforts like that uh because we're realizing how important it is to move cats faster along the pathway to adoption. And also because uh, in greater society, we're having more knowledge about uh, what cat, what, what animals in general need to be happy. And it's something that isn't so esoteric to people who might be supporters as it was before. Um, I think it's something that excites people, it excites people who wanna donate, it excites volunteers to be able to come in and start a program. And, uh, so it's a good time to, you know, hit that iron.
0: Yeah. To me, that feels like such a great concrete takeaway for anyone listening to this is it's like, here's how you start that mindset shift is walk through your shelter or your rescue. If you're a cat coming there for the first time, what are things you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? Like just little things like that, I think are so important because I love this idea of this kind of mindset shift and ingraining it into your everyday work. I had a conversation on a different podcast with um, a Purina behaviorist and she studies rabbit behavior. And she said, you know, bake it into everyday. Any, any interaction you have with that animal say, what can I do to make this a more positive experience for them? So yeah. I, love, I love that.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I was working with a shelter um, about a year and a half ago and um, they realized just because of the way they were set up structurally that um, they, they had an intake area where the cats and the dogs were right together. So just to give one example of a behavioral need, um, cats have a very uh, acute sense of smell and sense of hearing and that is because they are hunters and successfully hunting is critical to their survival. And so, uh, smells and sounds trigger whether there's a threat and the scent of dogs and the sight and sight and sound of dogs has been proven in a shelter environment with data to cause stress in cats. So, um, when they come into the intake area and dogs are right there, well, they're already stressed out. I had a shelter who, um, actually said instead of any building modifications that we could make, we think that we're going to move to a model of, um, taking appointments for intake. Well, once they started taking appointments for cat intake, um, they were actually then able to talk to the people before they were bringing their cat in and one of the things that we realized by sitting in the intake room and watching it's not like a startling discovery but um you know people are really upset when they're turning their animals in we figure that state of being upset starts way before the animal actually gets turned into the shelter. And if you think of like, what was the experience, and cats are attuned to our stress, right? So uh, what was the experience of that cat with their owner from the time of that decision that got made by the owner? And how is the owner acting? Is the owner crying and begging their cat to get into the carrier? Is you know the person apologizing the whole drive to the shelter? Um, we are going to assume that the stress for that cat starts, you know, way before they actually get to the intake area. So now the shelter is able to counsel people and tell them, you know, despite how you're feeling, act as normal as you can with your cat, you know, from the time you've made the decision to relinquish your cat, don't start pulling away from your cat, you know, be normal be normal and calm when you put them in the carrier, be normal and calm with putting the radio on, be normal and calm when you walk into the intake area. And, um, you know, anecdotally at least, they thought that uh, they were seeing cats a little bit calmer uh, when they came into the intake area because the owners were were calm. So you really think about that pathway from the point of the decision that's been made um, to, through all the way through to adoption, but you assume the cats are coming in stress. And then what additional stressors are they experiencing at intake? And um, so you put all these precautions in place, you accommodate your environment, uh, that's upfront work, but then maybe what happens on the back end is. The cats are more relaxed when they go in to see that vetted at intake. They can get out of, if you have like a decompression room or some decompression cages, they can get out of those cages a little bit faster. They're not getting upper respiratory as much in the cat room as they were before. They're not hiding um, when the adopters come and walk through the room. So you actually, the longer term payoff is worth what you have to put in up front. But as we said before, it does requiring that step back Getting everybody on board, making sure there's a planning process, monitoring how it's going. And so it, the work that you have to do up front is considerable, but it's worth it in the long run.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it'll ultimately help you move more cats and hopefully, I mean, as much as we try to make our shelters and rescues a stress free environment, it's still pretty stressful, probably. So it feels like if you take these steps up front, the quicker you can move cats and the, I guess, less time they have to spend in a high-stress environment.
1: Yeah, I think that there are still a lot of um, uh, sheltering organizations that uh, aren't trained to look around their environment and really know what could be stressful to the cats. Or they have an idea that some things could be stressful, but when they look at the cats, they're not seeing the stress. So they're thinking, well, you know, everything's fine. Um, Another thing that shelters don't often have time to do is really look at their data and understand their data. Um, So sometimes if you step back and look at the data, look at the length of stay uh, for specific cats, you start to see where the obstacles are really coming in. And um, then if you look back, you can say, oh, well maybe, um, maybe one of, maybe our a length of stay could be decreased if uh, dogs didn't walk past the cat room every day to get to the to get to get play field outside. Um, things like that, that a lot of organizations don't think of because this cat behavior knowledge and sheltering is still relatively relatively new
0: yeah yeah absolutely and you know even moving on from kind of covering the intake and the steps we can take while the cat's in our care i think it's important that we stress to our adopters that you have to continue this kind of you know meeting their behavioral needs in a home environment so what are some kind of quick tips that you have for that and starting that conversation?
1: Uh, So the, the homeowners, um, I think, uh, you know, there used to be an idea. I think the idea is kind of still out there, but not as prevalent as it used to be that the cat's the easy pet, you know, you just get a cat, bring it home, flop it on the floor, you know, set up the litter area. You, you should be good plug and play cats are the plug and play animal. Right. But almost anybody who's ever owned a cat knows that is, that is not true. They're, they're quirky and they have different personalities and they need different things. And uh, if you do not attend to your cat, you will run into problems, whether it be that they're not using the litter box, um, you know, a relatively common one that I see is that people where we taught about a cat who's stalking and pouncing and a lot of the time the stalking and pouncing comes from that people are not playing with their cat um, or interacting in a play type way with their cat and they have a cat that wants to play and wants to engage with them and be friendly with them and when they don't get that attention they find ways to go get the attention. Um, again we we pretty much know if we have a dog that we should walk our dog on a regular basis Um, we should play with our dog on a regular basis Um, but a lot of people do not think that yet about their cats as an example so you know start a play session twice a day with your cat Um, kind of watch these behaviors dissipate before they get really bad you know, that's, that's something that's kind of simple. There's a lot of things that people still don't know about, um, how to set up an appropriate waste management area for your cat. And that leads to problems. Um, so, uh, I think that I went like, I kind of think of, um, the behavioral needs of cats as falling into two main areas. One is stress relief and the other one is stress relief and engagement and the other is waste management. And, um, uh, there's rules that fall under each of those. And I think that maybe you and I will get a chance to talk in the future to actually walk through step-by-step what those are specifically. Um, That applies to the shelter as well as in home. They're just different because those environments are different. Yeah.
0: I think that's so important. And I hope we can get a chance to talk about Mm -hmm. that too. I think that would be a really great conversation, maybe for a uh, part two or upcoming podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like we've covered off on a lot, um, and I think that people listening are going to want to be learning more, and and we've given them some places to start, but where can they find more information?
1: Um, they can find information about being cat-friendly in um, a couple of places. So one is the Association of Animal Welfare Advancement, aawa.org. Um, Another place is the American Association of Feline Practitioners, AAFP. They have information on becoming cat-friendly, very helpful. And I think that a key foundational document is the ASV, Association of Shelter Veterinarians, Guidelines for Standards of Care in Animal Shelters, and um, all sheltering and rescue organizations should be familiar with the advisement that's offered in that document.
0: Yeah. I think and there
1: are stuff. there there are cat behaviorists like me that shelters can reach out to. Um, my website is thatcatgirl.com and um, I provide help to shelters all the time depending on what their needs are.
0: Great. Well, that's awesome. I think this is a good point to wrap up and you know, thank you again so much for coming on. And I learned a lot. (laughs) I think everyone listening to this learned a lot too. And I can almost guarantee we'll have a part two. So I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, thank you again.
1: All right. Well, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Adoption Options Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give us a rating on your podcast platform. If you're on Facebook, please search for our Adoption Options Closed Community Facebook group to be the first to know about new episodes, hear from our speakers, and connect with your animal welfare peers. We'll see you next week.